0: Uh, one, one that I forgot to mention, it's kind of uh, interesting, is um, uh, this alphabet, which is used by uh, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, back in the century, or I should century, there were two missionaries, again, priests, uh, by the name of Cyril and Methodius. They were two brothers, and they felt called of the Lord to go reach the Slavic peoples in Eastern Europe. And uh, they went there, and sure enough, similar to what Ophelus found when he reached the the Germans, the Gothic people in, uh, along the Danube, um, he found that they didn't have a written form of their language. So they put together, using basically heavy Greek characters, what would become known as the Cyrillic alphabet that's used throughout Eastern Europe and Russia today. So get a load of this. Think about this. At the height of the Cold War, atheistic Soviet Union, their very alphabet that they use to communicate, that they use as their written uh, language, was devised by a missionary with the purpose of sharing the gospel with those people. Isn't that ironic? Um, so uh, missionaries uh, have changed the world, and they certainly have governed the column of human progress. But uh, anyway, we'll just forgot to mention it last night. Let me pull up my Boulevard Bible Chapel. And we want to talk about scientific evidence for the reliability of the Bible today. And before I do that, I think I'm going to show you a video. Um, This seemed to be a hit with the Bosworth boys. Uh, Tell me if you like this. You're either going to like this video or not. Um, This is a, uh, I think it was a Ford commercial in Europe. They didn't run it here. You can tell me if you like it or not. Oh, that's pretty awful. That's... I don't know why I showed that. All right, let's try a different one. Wait, Ready? Is that, is that real? No, no, no. <laughs> Very good. (laughs) I don't think so, but (laughs) here, let's try this one. (laughs) <laughs> I think there's a point to these, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll do uh, two more real quick. Um, where's the dramatic uh, uh, lemur? Do you see that? That's it. That's it, right? There we go. All right, we're going to talk about this guy a little bit later, but I'll set it up. singing uh, in the jungle, the mighty jungle, but I don't think you want to hear all that. (laughs) Lemur right now is creating a whole big ruckus because of something that was uh, discovered a couple summers ago, and we'll talk about that in a second session um, with lemurs. Uh, Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about our beloved country for a second. Our gracious God and lovely Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come here tonight. I thank you for uh, these folks all coming out here and to to look on these things, Father, uh, so that we could look at the evidence, show that the Bible is your word, that it's reliable and trustworthy, and that you've authenticated it by things you put in it, how it knows things about the world we live in, hundreds and many cases, thousands of years before science figures these same things out. So Father, I pray that you bless our discussion tonight as we look on these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's something to think about. This is a satellite image, and obviously it's been touched a bit to emphasize where people live in North America. Um, but you get the sense of the thing. Now, where are you guys? You guys are right here, right? Are you up here or down here? Down? This is you guys? All right? this is my home up here. There's Boston. Kind of work your way west. What's that? That's Chicago, I guess, right? Detroit. Uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco. The United States has um, more churches, more seminaries, more Bible colleges, more Christian colleges, more Christian bookstores, more Christian radio stations. Greatest access to Christian literature in the world. I actually saw a study on this. Do you realize if you took all of the other world's bookstores and all of the other world's Bible colleges and all the other world's seminaries, combined them together, we have more here. The United States has had more light than any nation in the history of the world. Um, You could find a church on every corner, it would seem. And yet, every year, our country is becoming less and less Christian. It seems to have less and less of a Christian worldview as its backdrop. And if anything, this country which has all this light, the country, the the world's culture, the country's culture, is having more of an influence on the church than the church is having an influence on the culture. And uh, in some of your lifetimes, you've seen this dramatic change. Um, What has happened? You know... uh, And when I was going to school, and that's not too long ago, but back in the 70s, public school, you know, we would recite the Pledge of Allegiance. There'd be a ten. Of, ten now, I guess the Ten Commandments was not in school when I was there, but some of you it was still in school, right? They had the Ten Commandments in the classroom, and uh, some of the schools. My mother went to school in Indiana, in Indiana, they would, the principal would open the day in prayer. Public school, um, but those things have long since been dispensed of uh, because of certain decisions of the Supreme Court. But what really has happened that has changed our culture? It's funny to think that uh, most of the Ivy League schools were started as Bible colleges or seminaries. If you go to Harvard, anybody ever been to Harvard? You go to Harvard, you walk through the main entrance, look on the back side of the main entrance, there's a stone that's put that talks about the reason why Harvard was founded. It was founded to be a seminary. To prepare, in the words, I think it says something to the effect of, to prepare young men and train them in the servants of Christ the Lord. So, Harvard University was originally set up to be a, a place to train young ministers. And of course, you couldn't find a, uh, a university that's probably, on the whole, more hostile to the gospel than what you see at Harvard. And that's the case, by the way, with every one of the Ivy League colleges, with the exception of Cornell. Every one of them was originally set up as a seminary. And the one exception that was not specifically set up to us as a seminary, besides um, Cornell, was University of Pennsylvania. And the University of Pennsylvania had on its initial board um, Whitfield, who was the Billy Graham of the 1700s, George Whitfield. Um, anyway, what has happened in our society that we are no longer a Christian? Worldview nation. The rest of the world views the United States as a Christian nation. The Islamic world views us as, um, I've traveled extensively in the Middle East, and, and um, they will look at the United States as something that's given, it. they see the Hollywood as the, the manifestation of what the United States is about. And um, so they see the church in the United States as feckless. I had somebody uh, use that term with me, feckless that we don't stop the decay of the culture. And that's one of the reasons why they, in mass, reject Christendom, by the way, is they see us as not standing in the gap. And it's, you know, I don't think they're, uh, uh, there's lots of things we could say about that. But what has happened in the West that has taken Britain from where they were the people who evangelized the world, to think about how... Britain sends the gospel throughout the world. It's like the United States in the 20th century funded the advance of the gospel. We put more missionaries out than any nation in history. But England brought the gospel for the first time to more places than any other nation. What has happened in the West? It's this. Uh, We have bought into this concept of evolution, um, where now it's the backdrop of everything. It's the backdrop of every science program you watch on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. There's just a presumption that the universe is 15 billion years old. There's just a presumption that evolution is established fact. Um, It's the backdrop of everything we do. Biological discussions are based on this idea that we're advancing from lower forms of life to more advanced forms of life, which, by the way, is funny. I, I study aerospace engineering at the University of Notre Dame. My professor in a class called thermodynamics is a guy by the name of Stuart McComas. Stuart McComas was the guy who developed the aileron on the F-15 fighter. So this is a heavy hitter guy. Now, Notre Dame, when I was there, used to be called the Fifth Service Academy because about 20% of the student body was ROTC. And they were getting all these hotshot Air Force contracts. And uh, they would do work for Grumman and, and the like. This guy, first day of class, uh, a course called thermodynamics. I remember this. I'm you a know, Bible-believing uh, Christian at a, a Roman Catholic university in great aerospace program, fourth or fifth best in the country, and the uh, first day of class, Stuart McComas says to us, by the time you're done with this course, you'll know that evolution is not possible in this universe. And it's all because of laws of thermodynamics. If we have a chance to touch upon that, we will. But basically, the second law of thermodynamics, an application of which is entropy, which says that things must go from a more complex state to a less complex state. They break down over time. It's why things rust and um, and yet our worldview is permeated by this idea that because of the introduction of energy and things like that, we can have biological systems that go from a less complex state to a more complex state. Very much theoretically argued about, and yet it is the backdrop of the, our culture's worldview. Very much the backdrop. By the way, evolution has changed dramatically in 50 years. The evolution that's taught 50 years ago in a typical high school classroom in the 1960s is very different from the evolution that's taught today. Um, But there's more, more we could say about that. But let me show you something. Just so you don't get discouraged about, well, the whole world, the whole scientific community seems to agree that evolution is true. By the way, the whole scientific community does not agree that evolution is true. I'm going to show you a couple of quotes from people that have changed the world you live in who don't believe in evolution. We'll get to that, too. But um, when I was going to school in the 70s, who here went to grade school in the 70s? OK, <laughs> a few of you. When I was going to school in the 70s, what we were taught about was not global warming. It was the coming of an ice age. I don't know if you remember this in, in, our, in the, the uh, Earth Sciences courses. But we were taught that uh, it's not global warming that's coming, coming, but it's another ice age. Now, I'm not here to debate global warming. That's not even interest for now. But I just want you to understand that 70 years ago, I'm sorry, 30 years ago, the consensus in the meteorological community was that an ice age was coming and that temperatures were dropping. By the late 80s, it had swung from another ice age is coming to we're going down the path of global warming. A complete change in the scientific community in the space of about 15 years. By the way, what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s? It switched again. Now it was no longer global warming. It was now global climate change. There are erratic swings in the world's climate. It changed again. Again, not here to debate whether global warming is taking place or global climate change is taking place. I'm just illustrating something. That the scientific community, just because they hold one opinion today, doesn't necessarily mean that same opinion is going to hold sway a couple decades from now. I'll show you this guy. This is John Coleman. So he got himself in trouble because he said that global warming is not taking place in the world. Now the only reason I'm pointing him out is you know who he is, right? He's the guy who started the Weather Channel. He was regarded as being the world's leading meteorologist. And he completely rejected the idea of global warming. Again, not here to debate global warming. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just illustrating a point that the scientific community Whatever may be the consensus today can certainly change tomorrow. So just because you hear and the, the producers of the Discovery Channel programs all have the presumption that evolution is taking place, A doesn't mean it's true, and B doesn't mean that it's uniformly the opinion of the scientific community, and C, that it's going to be the position tomorrow. And already evolution has changed the way it's taught, certainly in the past 100 years ago, 100 years. Do you know if you went to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, the New York Museum of Natural History, in in the early 1900s, they actually had a display, it was called a living display, of pygmies. Australian pygmies that were regarded as a different life form. They believed that, oh, the pygmies originated as separate life from the rest of humanity. Their life, their origin of their life was separate and apart from the rest of human life. This is what they taught. So they actually justified them being displayed as a separate species. Well, long, few decades beyond that, they started to realize, evolutionary theorists, started to realize this is a dangerous game. If you teach that pygmies aren't humans, then you can begin to justify racism. And heaven help us if we go there. So they began to change when they saw the consequences of teaching that pygmies were separate human beings, were separate race. They saw the consequences, the sociological consequences. They began to change the way they taught evolution. Now understand, they didn't change because of scientific data. They changed because of sociology. Sociology. So just understand what I'm saying. The typical person who's producing your Discovery Channel program doesn't know all this background. They presume that this is the worldview. This this is right, good science. But when you dig into these things, and one of the best ways to look at this is look at the lead thinkers in some of these realms, the lead guys in the in the, who are theoretically dealing with biological issues. It is not uniform whatsoever. There's so many problems that evolution presents, biologically speaking. But hold that thought. Let's go to this. John 3.12. This is in this great passage where the Lord is presenting the idea of being born again to Nicodemus. In John 3, verse 12, uh, the Lord starts to share with Nicodemus uh, the whole concept of being born again, and he does an analogy. We won't go through the passage for the sake of time, but he does this analogy. Where he says, "The wind blows where it blows, and sometimes you can't tell where it's coming from." And so it is with, with the spirit. You know Nicodemus is having this hard time understanding the concept of what it means to be born again, getting totally tripped up in the idea that he's thinking that the Lord is speaking about physical, physically being reborn again. The Lord makes this analogy with wind in the passage, and Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's talking about when it comes to wind. So the Lord says to him, Look, if you don't even understand things about the world around you that I'm telling you, how can you ever believe if I'm telling you about heavenly things? Now, Ken Am, who's a, you know, one of the leading guys with answers in Genesis, he says, he paraphrases John 3.12, and he says, Well, this is the way he paraphrases John 3.12, and I'm taking a little liberty with the text for the sake of setting up our discussion the next hour and a half. If you do not believe the earthly things, that is the things about our physical universe and the Word of God, then how can you believe the heavenly things that are in the Word of God, things of a spiritual nature? It's almost as if Satan's MO for the past 150 years has been this. If I can challenge the Bible in its discussion of the sciences, if I can make people think that the Bible is inaccurate in its biology, if I can make people think that it's inaccurate in its discussion of astronomy, if I can make people think that it's inaccurate when it touches upon the earthly sciences, then they'll never believe it when it comes to spiritual things. They'll never believe it when it comes to moral things. And that's exactly what we've seen happen in our culture in the past hundred and some odd years. In other words, Satan attacked the Bible and said, You cannot trust the Bible in its astronomy. You cannot trust the Bible in its biology. You can't trust the Bible in all these ologies. And by the way, if it's not right in all these scientific things, why would you ever trust it on things you can never test, like spiritual things? And that's been the MO for the past hundred years, the modus operandi that Satan has chosen to attack the Scripture and erode the foundation. By the way, if the Bible is wrong about the first three chapters of Genesis, if there was no fall, think about this. If there was no fall where there was a first sin committed by Adam and Eve, then what you have to argue is that this universe was created with death already being part of it. Death already was resident in this universe if you don't have an original fall of man and, of mankind. And that changes what? It changes our very understanding of the character and nature of God. And that was Satan's M.O., and that has worked. That attack on the Bible has eroded the foundation of the Western world. Now what I want to do, though, is I want to look at the sciences that are touched upon in the Bible to show you that this book is accurate when it comes to matters of astronomy, that it's accurate when it comes to matters of astrophysics, that it's accurate when it comes to matters of chemistry. The Bible has tons of science in it, tons of science in it, It knows things about geology that we never knew until the past hundred years. It knows things about physiognomy, physiology, that we never knew until the past hundred years. It knows things about oceanography. It touches on all these subjects in so many different places. And in so doing, it actually demonstrates this came from someone who is outside of our time-space-matter universe. If it knows things before, and science does, and then science comes along and says, ah, you know, this is true, then you've got an authenticated message. Remember what we said about authentication, right? When Morgan Stanley sends money to Citibank, if you were here last night, they authenticate the message. They put something in the message that only Citibank would know, so the Citibank knows when they're asking them to move $40 billion, the Citibank knows it really came from Morgan Stanley. It's the same thing with this book. The way God proves, sorry, (laughs) the way God proves that this book came from himself, is he puts things in it that are predictive. Prophecy. He puts things in it that there's no way anyone could know unless they're a being that's not bound by our time, space, matter, universe. So let's look at some of these things that show up in science. And by the way, I've, um, we're never going to get through even a hundredth of this stuff, um, so I'm just warn you. But let's look at astronomy. Um, Isaiah 40, verse 22. So let's see what the Bible says about astronomy. It is He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The word that's used for circle there in Isaiah 40 is the Hebrew word, and I, I need someone who knows how to pronounce Hebrew well because you really got to build up that, you know that. But the Hebrew word is chug. If you were to transliterate it, it would be K-H-U-G. It's chug. It's the same word that's used in Hebrew literature of the time for a ball. But the Bible is saying it is God who sits above the sphere or the ball of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. There's a number of verses where God talks about the round shape of the earth. Now here's the thing. Let's see, you learned Bible scholars among us. When did Isaiah live? When is Isaiah prophesying, right? He's prophesying right around the time of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, about 722 B.C. He's prophesying to Judah, but it's right around the time that Israel's getting ready to fall, 722 B.C. When's the earliest that anybody outside of the Bible, to the best of our knowledge, even had the faintest inkling that the world was round? The first guy to come up with it from all the evidence we have, was a Greek mathematician, and you all learned about him in high school. His name is Pythagoras. Remember the Pythagorean theorem? Pythagoras, about 500 years before Christ, or a couple hundred years after Isaiah wrote, is the first guy who says, you know what, I think the earth may be round. By the way, mathematicians did not prove it for another 270 years. It was in 230 B.C., that a Greek mathematician by the name of Eratosthenes came along, he did studies with shadows, and he actually proved the world was round. 500 years after Isaiah first writes it. How does Isaiah know the world is round? Is an Isaiah an astronomer? Is he a mathematician? What did we say last night? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Ultimately, it's God the Holy Spirit who is animating him as he writes these words. And God the Holy Spirit knows the shape of the earth because of what? He created the thing. The Bible right in its astronomy. By the way, see that expression, stretches out the heavens like a curtain? One of the things that has baffled scientists, it's been uh, a study that has been going on for about a hundred years, is how big is the universe? It was right, to right around the time of the beginning of World War I where astronomers were starting to figure out, okay, is our universe never-ending? Or is it contained? And actually, in 1992, there were all these theoretical exercises that said, you know what? Our universe does end, but it seems to be expanding. There's a point where space stops. Your mind almost can't get around it. You think that space goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Astronomy says that's not the case. Uh, I'll give you a little little study here to show you how scientists figure this out. Proved it in 1992. They sent up a satellite called COBE, the Cosmic uh, Background Explorer Satellite. All these things have happened in most of your lifetimes, by the way. They sent up a satellite, and what this thing is doing, one of its chief experiments, is it's trying to figure out the average temperature of the universe. Now, it doesn't have a thermometer, it doesn't fly all over the universe figuring out the average temperature, right? What it does is it looks at background radiation. And by looking all over the place, it's trying to make a guess by looking at background radiation, what's the average temperature of the universe? Now, give you a little analogy here. Let's say we shut all the, we shut this place tight. We shut all the doors, shut all the windows. It's zero degrees in here. You've never had zero degrees in Florida, right? Not for a long time, maybe, um, maybe never. Um, zero degrees in Florida. Shut all the doors, shut all the windows, and we cl- create a closed system. Zero degrees. Now let's say I put a radiator in here and I turn the radiator on to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Given enough time, what's going to start to happen to the average temperature in the room? It's going to start to rise, right? Because it's a closed system. Now let's take the same radiator. Do you have a hockey team in Florida? Tampa Lightning, right? Florida Panthers? All right, where do they play? Panther Stadium? That's a very imaginative name. Is it Panther Stadium? Okay. So the Florida Panthers are, what's that? Somewhere on ice. Somewhere on ice. But it's not an outdoor stadium, right? It's a closed stadium. Let's close all the doors, close all the windows in Panther Stadium. It's zero degrees in the stadium. Closed system. Closed all the doors, close all the windows. Closed system. We take a radiator, a little radiator, and we sit it in the middle of the ice. We set it to 70 degrees. Given enough time, what's going to happen to the average temperature in Panther Stadium. It's going to start to rise. Now let's take that same radiator and lay it out in the middle of the Florida Everglades. It's zero degrees out. <laughs> we turn the... We, I'm just spewing stuff. Everybody, going to, You turn the radiator on. You set it to 70 degrees. You let it run for a period of time. What's going to happen to the average temperature in Florida? Not a thing. You know why? Because it's an open system. Now put that in the back of your mind. What did they do in 1992 with the COBE satellite? They send the satellite up there It's trying to measure the average temperature of the universe. The average temperature of the universe should be, if it's an open system, I don't care how many stars you have, how many galaxies you have, they shouldn't be able to generate enough heat to raise the average temperature of the universe one degree if it's an open system that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, right? should be what's called absolute Kelvin, the lowest temperature you can get, 473 degrees below zero or something like that. Forget the number. What it found was the average temperature of the universe was 2.7 degrees higher than the absolute Kelvin, which said to them, guess what? It's a closed system. It's expanding, but it's a closed system. Your Bible, writing 2,700 years ago, says, A, that the universe is a closed system, but that it's expanding. And by the way, you notice that it uses a present tense word stretches out the heaven. And sure enough, we believe, with good astronomical data, good astrophysics data, that our universe is expanding in every different direction, about a hundred and... I don't remember the number, so I won't quote it. But 114,000 miles an hour or something like that. I'll, I'll see if it comes up in one of these slides. You understand this book is a sophisticated book. It knows things about the universe we live in well before Uh, astronomy figures it out and Hubble does all this stuff figuring out the expansion rate of the universe but here's Job writing we had this discussion yesterday I think you and I. Job is probably the first author of scripture you know Moses is writing about 1400 years before Christ Job we think was somewhere in the realm of Abraham he seems to have been a priest uh, you know a, a family priest much like Abraham was and Melchizedek was Uh, Job is probably writing about 2,000, 2,100 years before Christ. He writes that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Now, again, I want to present this to you. Do you realize the Bible presents the concept that the earth is not sitting on top of anything? Do you realize how unique that is to ancient literature? What did the Hindus think the world was sitting atop? There's two debates that occur in Hindu literature. It's the wildest thing in the Vedas. One says that what the world is sitting atop of is an endless series of elephants. There's another school of thought that says, no, 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 it's not an endless series of elephants. It's an endless series of turtles. Now, before we make too much fun of them, remember this is one of the most advanced societies on the face of the earth, and they have no idea what in the world is holding everything up. What do the Greeks think? Now, their mythology is wacky, but they believe ultimately it's... uh, uh, What's the guy holding the globe on his back? Atlas, right? Now actually, he's not holding the globe in the back. Supposedly, he's really holding the uh, galaxies on his back. By the way, the Greeks were the first one to think, to figure out there must be such a thing as galaxies. Democritus was the first one to figure it out. Um, By the way, does your Bible talk about galaxies? We'll come back to that. This is a wild passage. Again, Job is writing 2,000 years before Christ, at least. He's talking about how day comes to pass. Why is there daylight in the world? This is Job 38, 12-14. God is speaking to Job and He says, Have you commanded the morning since your day began and caused the dawn to know its place? God is talking about how morning comes to pass, that it might take hold at the end of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. He's making an analogy that when daylight comes up, all the wicked guys go home from all their mischief over the night. He says the way that day comes to path, comes to pass, the reason that there's daylight, that ends the night, is that it takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. Basically, you know how they made clay vases in the old days, right? You'd have a spinning wheel. You'd take your hands and you'd spin the clay around. And the clay would spin on its axis and you would give it form. What the Bible is saying here is the reason that there is daylight that comes to pass on the earth is because of a spinning of the clay. It's so sophisticated that if you read commentaries talking about what in the world is this talking about, Hebrew literature 2,000 years ago, they don't know what this is saying. But we, of course, know now it's speaking of the rotation of the earth, which, of course, is what gives rise to day and night. It's a sophisticated book. By the way, this is the verse that most skeptics, or this is the passage that most skeptics um, in the French Renaissance... Took issue with the Bible on Psalm 19, this great psalm of uh, David's. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night utters knowledge. Oh, time is flying by. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. The sun is the subject of the rest of these verses which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. The sun's rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit or circular path to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. heat. For years and years and years, secular skeptics, particularly out of France, but later on elsewhere in the Western world, said the Bible hasn't mistaken it. The Bible says there that the sun travels on a circular path. And they said, that's wrong. The sun does not travel on a circular path. But of course, what do we know today? Does the Sun travel on a circular path? You better believe it does. While we're traveling around the Sun, what is the Sun doing? The Sun is traveling around the center of the Milky Way on a circular path. By the way, how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy? The Germans and the Americans are debating this right now. It shows you how little we know. The Germans say that the Milky Way galaxy, as of last summer, is comprised of 400 billion stars. The Americans have, our astronomers are saying it's more like 200 billion. They're off by a factor of two. It's just funny that they're that far off. But anyway, they're debating. It's hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy. And our Sun is one of these stars that's traveling around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. What is the Milky Way galaxy doing? It's traveling on a circular path in its own right. It's traveling around the center of what is called the Andromeda or Magellanic uh, cloud or group of galaxies. We think there are about 47,000 galaxies that are in a big circular with one another traveling around each other in a circular path. By the way, what are they doing? They're traveling on a circular path. Not only is that verse right, it's right in spades. It's right exponentially. How does David know that a thousand years before Christ? We could go on and on and on with the astronomy of the Bible. Let me show you a couple of things. This is Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton wrote seven million words in the book of Revelation. Uh, clearly, uh, I think... Uh, clear testimony of faith in the God of the universe. The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets can only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Look at this guy. Every one of your lives has been affected by him and you don't know it. This is John O'Keefe. We are, by astronomical standards, a pampered, cosseted, cherished group of creatures. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision We could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate that the universe was created for man to live in. He's the guy who comes up with this phrase. It looks as if the universe was made with man in mind. That's John O'Keefe. Does anybody know who John O'Keefe is? Does anybody have a GPS in their car? Does anybody have a cell phone? You owe him a thanks. He's the guy that comes up with the global satellite positioning system for the U.S. Air Force back in the 40s and the 50s. Or in the 50s. He's the guy that Ronald Reagan gives the order to because he was top guy in, a, in a NASA. And he says after, remember the Korean airliner that was shot down? The reason we have GPS uh, as public use, you're all using an Air Force system that the private companies have plugged into. It's a US Air Force system that the world uses, uh, these global satellites. Um, after the Korean airliner was shot down back in the 80s, the Russians shot it down near Sakhalin Island Um, Reagan realized this plane had strained off course and the Russians shot it down because the plane was off course. So he ordered the U.S. Air Force to make global satellite positioning systems available to the general public and to commercial aviation. Of course, Garmin comes along and changes driving for guys who don't like to admit they're lost. (laughs) (laughs) This is the guy who is the architect behind the global satellite positioning system and uh, really the basis for a lot of cell phone technology we use in, in the world. By the way... Ardent, Bible-believing Christian. And guess what he didn't believe in? Evolution. thought it was a lie. thought it was bad science. Anyway, that's astronomy. We've got a few minutes left. How about biology? Again, there's lots of verses we could touch on in this. I'm just going to do a couple. um, Because we'll never get through all this stuff. Genesis 1.24. God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Genesis 124. The Bible has this idea that there are these species, these animal kinds. You know, when Noah was getting all the animals on the ark, right? He didn't take two Dalmatians and two what is Zoe? What type of dog is she? She's a what? A sheep Tzu. she poo. Didn't take two of those. <laughs> Didn't take two German shepherds. He took two dogs. And all the dogs you see in the world today are descendants of that dog. Those two dogs. By the way, what is nature, what have what have what has biology demonstrated for us with the with the understanding of DNA in the past 20 years? But let me you see this dog right here? This is what's called a Siberian wolf. Isn't he gorgeous? I'd love to have this dog. I'd never have my house robbed. Um, look at that thing is that gorgeous Uh, let me make sure I quote this right Science Magazine in November of 2002 commissioned a DNA study actually it was published in in, uh, in November of 2002 so they commissioned the study a year and a half earlier where they took 654 dogs types from around the world. Domestic and uh, wild. So coyotes, wolves, um, Dobermans and dachshunds and and all sorts of different types of dogs. And they did a DNA study to see if these animals are actually related. And you know what they found? It's a fascinating study. This guy and his wife, Siberian wolves have all the genetic information in them to produce every dog on Earth. Every dog can be reproduced from these two dogs. You just need enough time. You just gotta breed them right. So if you wanted to make a dachshund, what are you gonna do with these two dogs? You're gonna take their litter, and you're gonna take the ones with a little shorter legs and you start to breed them together. And given enough generations, I start looking at the dogs that have brown fur, that lighter fur instead of the real dark fur. I breed them together and give me enough generations within it. It's not It's not hundreds of thousands of generations. We're talking under a thousand generations, a few hundred generations. I can go from this dog to a dachshund because he's got all the genetic information in him to produce every dog on earth. You know what that says? Common ancestry. Common ancestry. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time to do this. Your Bible is right about this. By the way, one of the best examples of this is us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. One of the big things that came out of the Human Genome Project, by the way, the Human Genome Project was headed up by Cornell University. a guy named, was it Francis Collins? I think it was Francis Collins. Francis Collins headed up this thing. He's one of the most brilliant scientists in the world. And one of the big ramifications coming out of that was they could say demonstrably that ultimately every human on earth was related. Well, you already knew that if you had your Bible, right? By the way, Francis Collins is a gospel-preaching Christian, but he believes in evolution. I'd like to change his mind about that, but he does believe that the, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It's the funniest thing that he believes in evolution. But anyway, um, anyway, Genesis 1.27, confirmed. Let me show you this and we'll, take a, we'll do one more after this. Um, this is from John Ray. There is for a free man no occupation more worthy and delightful than to contemplate the beauteous works of nature and honor, the infinite wisdom and goodness of God. John Ray is considered in many ways to be the father of biology. And the reason why he's considered that is because He's the first to really define what constituted a species um, in the 1600s in England. Um, It really had to do with his work with plants. Uh, This other one, Carl Linnaeus, he was a Swede who's regarded as the father of taxonomy because he's the first to really come up with a system of ranking biological organisms. But read what he said. The flowers' leaves serve as bridal peds which the Creator has so gloriously arranged adorned with such noble bed curtains and perfumed with so many soft scents that the bridegroom with his bride might there celebrate the nuptials with so much their greater solemnity." Do you understand how many fields of science that you study at a typical university were actually started by Bible-believing Christians? We get this idea that we're afraid of science. But understand that if you study the thing and study the history of the sciences, you realize how much of an impact Bible-believing Christians had on the thing and often were at the forefront of starting the field. Let me skip ahead here real quick. Um, We'll come back to a couple of these things. but This is taken from a book called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? These are different fields of science that we can trace the origin to a Bible-believing Christian. So antiseptic surgery starts with Joseph Lister. Clear testimony, gospel-preaching Christian. Bacteriology, Louis Pasteur, where you get the word pasteurized milk, Bible-believing Christian. Calculus, Isaac Newton. Celestial mechanics, Johannes Kepler. Chemistry, Robert Boyle. Anatomy, Georges Cuvier, which you'll be learning about when you do your physiology class. Computer science, Charles Babbage. You realize this whole thing right here, right? Right. The idea of mechanical computer programming goes to Charles Babbage. He was a Scotsman who was a minister. He's the one who first conceptualized mechanical computer programming in the form that's leveraged today by, you know, we have electronic computer programming now, which, by the way, was started by a guy out of Iowa University whose name has escaped me, but also a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, Electronics, Fleming. Electrodynamics, Maxwell. Electromagnetics, Faraday. Energetics Lord Cal every one of these guys you can make a clear case that they were a Bible believing Christian, had a high view of the scripture, and put their trust in Christ. And guess what? Your university system today, they'll have these fields of studies you gotta take when you're getting your scientific degree, and they were started by Bible believing Christians. And we think that science is not our realm. What is that ring? Oh. The royal ring? Well let's talk about rain. I can find it. Here we go. Meteorology. Perfect interlude. The Lord has prompted me to go to this topic. Take a look at this. This is Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Let's look at Amos. The Lord's home reaches up to the heavens while its foundation is on the earth. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. You know how the weather cycle works, right? Gets some cloud, some cloud is floating along. It looks down at the ocean or lakes, or, and it says, I'm really thirsty. And it goes down to the ocean and does what? It sucks up the water out of the ocean. How does it do that? Through evaporation. Takes water out of the ocean through evaporation. Now the cloud is really full. It's floating along. It's like, oh, I had a little too much to eat. And it runs into the mountains, right? And all of a sudden it does what? Right? It upchucks. It upchucks on the mountains. How does it upchuck in the form of what? Condensation. It snows, it hails, it, it rains, right? So it spills all its guts out and it falls on the mountains. And what happens? The rain falls on the mountains or on the chapel. And what does that rain do? That water goes from the mountains and it goes into little brooks, and the brooks go into wadis, and the wadis go into streams, and the streams go into? Rivers. And the rivers go into oceans or lakes, right? So this whole concept, he draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. And you go back to what Solomon is saying. The rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again, Do you realize how absolutely accurate that is from a meteorological standpoint? Ultimately, the rivers come from the oceans. Completely baffling until you understand evaporation and condensation. How long have we known about evaporation and condensation? It's not very long. We've known about it for about 300 years. Two French scientists, Edmi Mario and... Pierre Perrault in 1608, he lived from 1608 to 1680, Edmy Mario from 1620 to 1684, and Halley, Edmund Halley, an English astronomer, the one who Halley's comet is named after. They're the first guys who started to theorize that rain ultimately comes from the oceans. And they were the first ones to kind of come up with a mathematical way of proving it in the 1600s, 1700s. The Bible is writing this. When is Amos writing? Amos is writing a long time ago. (laughs) He's writing about 750 B.C. Solomon is writing about 1,000 years before Christ. In other words, thousands of years before modern science figures it out. These guys know it. Now how do they know it? Who's writing the book? Anyway, there's more we could say. I want to tell you about ants, but I don't have time. Let's take a... uh,